hi there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. As a result, you may experience varying microphone levels. Thanks for understanding, and thanks for listening. It's a frigid day in Salem Village, February 1692. It's morning, and the prayer rolls off your tongue. Too easily, if you're honest. Your daily communion with God is dulled these days. Exhausted. Frustrated. The three ministers before you couldn't make a successful career in Salem either. But you're determined to be the one who does. The one who stays. The one the community values. And rewards accordingly. But anxieties about this fractured community you serve just build in your gut as you gather your tools for the day. Parchment, scripture, candlesticks. As you leave the parsonage for the church, you feel the reproachful gaze of God upon you, the stinging bite of your unfulfilled potential. It makes this short walk to church feel longer every day. Someone calls your name. You turn to see Dr. Criggs and fellow minister John Hale. They're exiting your home. They were there to examine your daughter, Elizabeth, who has been strangely afflicted of late. Your heart sinks at their grave expressions. Betty? You ask. Dr. Griggs hesitates, then shakes his head. Reverend Paris, I believe we're dealing with witchcraft. The last word strikes a burning fear in your chest. Fear like you've never imagined before. Forget this fractured town you can't seem to heal. Now the devil himself has infiltrated your home, your family. The Reverend Hale hasn't said a word. He just stares. You stare back at him, but can't read his gaze. Is it doubt? Pity? Or is he also just deathly afraid? The parsonage looms behind him, suddenly just a hopeful relic of a different time. You arrange your face into stony composure and nod to the men before you walk back inside your home, if you can even call it that anymore. Such is the disfiguring power of terror, you think. As a man of God, your faith is your conviction. But as you cross the threshold of your front door, a new conviction is taking hold. That you and everyone else in your community has crossed a point of no return. Hey there, I'm Dr. Karen Bellinger, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome to another episode of Working Over Time the podcast that examines society through the lens of work over time and across cultures. It's officially spooky season. With Halloween fast approaching, what better time to dive into today's topic, the role of religious ministers in the Salem witch trials of Puritan New England. Now, 17th century New England is a time and place I've always found hugely fascinating and I had the great privilege of exploring it from a new perspective with our guest, historian and author Isabella Connor, 
as scary as witches and demons are. It's the human stuff. The devastating effects of mass hysteria and unchecked wielding of political power that frightens me the most. So, let's hop onto our broomsticks and zoom back to the Massachusetts Bay Colony in the winter of 1692. Isabella is a Massachusetts-based historian and author. She's worked as a writer, researcher, and historical interpreter in Salem for several years, focusing particularly on the 17th through 19th centuries. She writes both fiction and nonfiction, mostly but not solely focused on New England history. She's currently working on a nonfiction children's book about the life of Anne Bradstreet, who was America's first published poet as well as an historical fiction novel set in Revolutionary War era Salem. Isabella runs a website with fellow writer Jacques Denault called jacquesandisabella.com and can be found on Instagram at Bella's Vignettes, where she frequently posts on New England history. Today, we're going to be talking about the religious establishment of Puritan New England in the time of the Salem witch trials. It's going to be good. Isabella, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm ecstatic to be here. Well, there's just not a whole lot of people that are going to really say that they're excited to talk to you about the 17th century from <laughs> more than 15 minutes and mean it. Oh, I mean it so much. I mean it, Isabella. It's what I did my dissertation on. So I'm excited. <laughs> I'm so excited. Yeah, I like what you said. Very few people are interested in talking about the 17th century with me. Um, they kind of picture it as this dingy, boring time, but... Oh, yeah, it was brown. There was a lot of brown. <laughs> That's okay. So I'm going to ask you to set the stage for us. Just give us a little 101 on late 17th century Puritan New England. What is the region's place in the world at this time? And can you give us a brief snapshot of Puritanism? as it was expressed there. The time period I'm gonna be looking at is specifically um, mostly Salem Village. And there's a, a distinction at the time between Salem Village and Salem Town. The Salem Village of then is mostly uh, the town of Danvers, Massachusetts now with some, some surrounding towns. You know, the, the town boundaries have changed quite a bit since then. Whereas the city of Salem would have been known as Salem Town. So that was the port. That's where the richer people lived. It was much better off at the time. I'm going to be talking about Salem Village um, as what we think of of Danvers now versus Salem Town is the actual city of Salem. In Salem Village, there is so much unrest. I mean, there was unrest in both areas, but specifically in Salem Village, in the farmland, there is so much um, dispute between the members, um, the families that lived there. They had wanted to become a separate town um, and were planning to become a separate town for a few years at this point. And recently the, the Massachusetts charter had been, you know, thrown away. They, they'd gotten, the king had gotten rid of it. So uh, there's a lot of, you know, discomfort and people don't really know what's going on at the time. Uh, and they're trying to figure out how to maintain their colony. This is a great picture of uh, a community really kind of in chaos and fear from all 
both sides. And so how, how did this create a, a place for the Puritan minister to become so powerful? The Puritan minister, um, you know, was an uh, interesting figure of the time. Uh, they were really cornerstones of their community. They were really these, these pillars of morality and spirituality that their communities would look to for, you know, comfort, for knowledge, for, you know, guidance, spiritual guidance. Because of this, you know, this fear that these Puritan settlers had of things that are different from them, they really went to these ministers to quell their fears, um, to guide them of, you know, how they should react or respond to uh, people and events. And this was really dangerous because, you know, rather than, you know, being these voices of reason, which they're supposed to be, they end up, you know, stoking the flames. They end up really, you know, instilling even more fear into these people's hearts. Uh, and it becomes, you know, very chaotic. And prior to the witch trials beginning, um, you have ministers in, you know, Salem town in the port saying that these wars are happening and all these bad things are happening because they have not been pious enough because God has abandoned them and the devil is among them. So even before the witch trials, you know, starts and is in full swing, you see these ministers who are meant to be, you know, the voice of reason and kindness in their communities. Instead, they're just, you know, fanning the flames and making these people's fears, you know, run rampant. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's interesting to look at and, and see the, the precursors, you know, how, how the witch trials ended up happening. You look at it and say, how did that end up happening? How did it get that bad? In looking at these, you know, precursors, it really puts it into perspective. So let's do that. I say let's dive into the day in the life of a Puritan minister. We're in the rough time period in which the Salem witch trials are going to erupt, but they haven't yet. We're, say, you know, in this time where the ministers in the port are blaming everything on, on the parishioners' poor religious hygiene, let's <laughs> just say. So let's try to go into the head of a minister. It can be a specific one or a hypothetical one. But tell us what that minister wakes up thinking about on a typical day. What, what have they got on their calendar? What do they need to do? So I, I'm going to try my best to dive into the head of, of Samuel Paris, the minister in Salem Village, you know, directly before the events of the witch trials happen. He hasn't been a minister in Salem Village for that long. It's been a couple years, but, you know, it hasn't been that long at, at this point. He's in this, you know, very, it, not all poor, but, you know, not all well-to-do town that has been struggling for a while. So he's going to be waking up on, you know, let's say a, a very cold day in a dreary, creaky, leaky house. <laughs> um, you know, his, the, the parsonage he was living in, you know, I've been to the foundation of it. And, you know, several times actually went there again yesterday. Um, and it's, it's this, you know, teeny tiny little foundation for a house. And only part of the house was on the foundation and the rest of the house was just flat on the earth. 
and you know Danvers or Salem Village at the time what you know is a swampy town it's very swampy very wet you know not you know then it would have been very gross and the parishioners have not been paying his salary um you know like they're supposed to he's he's not very comfortable after he's you know said his morning prayer after he's had breakfast he if it's a sunday is going to be heading to church to deliver his weekly sunday sermon and everyone in town is expected to to go to the sermon that has he's going to be giving so that's typically what he would spend a Sunday doing. But the rest of the week, he would be preparing his sermon for Sunday. So he would be writing down notes of what he wanted to say. He'd be looking for Bible passages to include. Um, and on Thursdays, they had these um, rotating weekly sermons or lectures in different surrounding towns. So Either on Thursday, he would be preparing and giving the lecture in Salem Village, or he would be traveling to one of the neighbor town, um, neighboring towns to hear another um, local minister giving a sermon or a lecture. He would have spent most of his week, um, you know, either delivering a sermon, listening to someone else give a sermon, or preparing a sermon. Um, but then he would also be making house calls. So, you know, he might have someone knocking on the door of the parsonage that they need his help with something, they need him to pray for them. He might receive a letter from somebody um, that they need his help with something. And very interestingly, um, at that time, even though you know they had physicians um, and surgeons who you know weren't you know weren't very well well versed <laughs> um, medically at the time, um, they had midwives and apothecaries who were who are who are better at their jobs, but. Um, a lot of the times you see instances from the time period of people writing to ministers um, that they have some sort of medical issue, um, some sort of illness, and you know they do they write to the ministers first before consulting a doctor. Uh, there's oh. an instance. It was an instance of a man, you know, from a neighboring town, um, not even from the same town as the minister he's writing to. I'm writing to a minister who I believe was Samuel Paris, but I, I'm not 100% certain because I couldn't, I couldn't find it again. But he was writing to a minister um, about his son having some severe tooth problem. Like it, it was like this, he's describing it. It's this gross, like who knows what was wrong with his tooth. Like, you know, he was having a serious problem and he had not, he had not consulted a doctor. And the, his first um, thought was to write to a local minister and ask him to come see his son to tell them what's wrong with him and to pray for him. So it's very- It's a it's serious very, belief, serious. Yeah, it's, I mean, these people, you know, their religion is so in, you know, saturated into their life and their communities. Um, so you really see these ministers being, you know, very revered figures, you know, you know people, would look to them for advice on you know, anything under the, under the sun. Um, so, so a minister at that time would have been um, serving a lot of different roles in their community. Uh, and, you know, some people might like them, some people might not like them, but these people are, are very well respected. How about the nature of the power they held? I mean, obviously they had a huge social currency and, and um, uh, were 
the intercessors to all aspects of life because of their spiritual power as it was perceived mm -hmm. by by the parishioners but did they have any political power H how did the sort of church and state um interlock you know there there really was no separation at that time you know um the church and and the in the laws in the state you know they're all intertwined um and you see very fascinating examples of this um during the witch trials. How did one become a minister? It seems like it was a highly respected, I'm not gonna trade, it's a calling. How does one get this gig? Oh, many of the ministers in Massachusetts Bay Colony at the time were Harvard educated. So Harvard was oh, originally course. established. Harvard to educate the ministers um so you know we right. think of it harvard now is like you know you know it's one of the top schools um, just one in of the them. world just one of them um just one of them <laughs> but you know it started as this little you know college in small tiny massachusetts bay colony to educate ministers so that right. was that was a its origins. Um, Samuel Paris had a very fascinating trajectory to becoming a minister. Um, so he he went to Harvard, but he didn't finish his schooling there. He actually had to leave, like drop out of school because his father had passed away and his father owned a plantation in Barbados. So oh. he left college to go and run his father's plantation and he was terrible at it he just he he didn't know what he was doing you know he just he was a failure as <laughs> as um as a plantation owner there ended up being a hurricane and you know it just like it destroyed it destroyed the plantation you know not entirely but it was to a point where he hadn't been good at running it he didn't really want to run it so he left and he went back to Boston and he met his, ended up being his wife, Elizabeth Paris. And he decided, you know, he had a calling, I guess. He decided he wanted to be a minister instead. So he ended up essentially being a substitute or adjunct minister in various churches in Boston for several years. Like, a, like an apprentice type of thing? Was that common that they would sort of move up the ranks that way? I think it was a way that some people would end up moving in the minister ranks, but it was sort of like this interesting, he was the substitute minister. Like if something, like if the minister was, you know, part-time in the town or if they were really sick or something, um, or if a minister had to suddenly, you know, leave a town and go somewhere else, you know, he would be um, the minister in, in the different parishes in Boston. Um, and it, it seems like it was kind of work that was like fewer and far between, like he was kind of just like, okay, today I'm going to go be the minister here. And then like maybe a month would go by and then he'd be like, okay, I'm going to go be the minister in this place and this time. Sounds like he was disappointed in, in many aspects of life early on. I really think he was. So yeah, he finally gets this gig of being the the minister in, in Salem Village, which I'm sure yeah, he do was. Do we know how that happened? I mean, that, that must have been a, a big day for him. I'm sure he was, you know, thrilled about this. Um, he, I don't know how he got in contact with the the family, the Putnam family in Salem Village, who essentially hired 
you know, contacted him and hired him. Um, but, you know, he was their choice. You know, he, they were this big family in the town who had a lot of sway. And he was their, their top choice that he got chosen by them. And I'm sure he was thrilled about this. And then I'm sure he arrived and was vastly disappointed. Ministers in Salem Village had been having difficulty for many years before Samuel Paris. Um, you know, actually, I'm going to talk about, you know, another minister briefly um, by the name of George Burroughs, who was um, minister in, in Salem Village about 11 years before the start of the witch trials. So George Burroughs, you know, he arrives from Maine and he, he gets the job, he gets there, and the parsonage is unlivable. You, you can't live in it. It's in disrepair. It, it's falling apart. So he has to live with you know, the same Putnam family that I just talked about, um, who wanted Samuel Paris to be the minister. So he lives with them while they build a new parsonage. While he's living with them, his wife dies. And the parishioners in the town, they have not been paying his salary. So he doesn't have any money. He doesn't have, you know, he doesn't even have a place to live. He's staying in someone else's house. He doesn't have money to pay for her funeral expenses, you know, not a penny. Oh. So he borrows money from the Putnam family to pay for her funeral expenses. And, you know, finally the parsonage is finished being built. He gets to move in. You know, it seems like, you know, everything's going to go okay from there, but still the parishioners are not paying his salary. Why are they not paying his salary? And why did they not pay? I, am I hearing that, that the parishioners are, are skint in Salem Village? Yes, you know, this is an ongoing thing. This is, um, it's really weird. Uh, and this could be because, you know, there are a lot of poorer people in the town, you know, they might not have been able to afford it so much. But um, this is going on for several years, you know, many years. And so, I mean, is there any any evidence that sometimes this was a, a withholding that reflected disapproval, that the parishioners weren't pleased with the minister? You would think they would respect him so much for the plays afforded. It seems really hard to get your head around. You do see, um, you know, after the witch trials, these people in Salem Village, uh, many of them are not happy with the minister in Salem anymore. They're not happy with Samuel Paris. They want him out. So many people both stop, you know, just refuse to pay, you know, for that reason. And many people stop going to the church in protest. And this is huge for Puritans, right? And in George Burroughs's case, he, even though he had been staying with the Putnam family, he, they ended up, you know, disagreeing. And there's some big explosion between them. Thomas Putnam, you know, the head of the Putnam family ends up, you know, demanding that George Barrows pays him back the money that he had given him for his wife's funeral expenses. And he, he can't because he doesn't have any money still. He's still not getting paid. So Thomas Putnam essentially tries to put him under arrest. And you know, luckily there are some, some people in Salem Village who are standing behind George Barrow, so they ended up putting the money forth, you know, paying back. Oh, wow. All right. So they wouldn't, they wouldn't pay his salary, but they weren't going to let him go down completely. That's a really <laughs> good it's Christian just, souls. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <clears throat> it's this, um, it's, just, it's strange. It's a strange, it's a strange place. 
it's a strange story and chain of events leading up. <laughs> and well, and these ministers were clearly very complex um, as cogs in the whole sort of social mm -hmm. machine, it, it sounds like. And you know, one thing that I, I, I think is, is really interesting to consider too, though, is um, as I understand it, that you know, the Puritans weren't satisfied, you know, just to sort of shape their own lives in this mm -hmm. particular moral and religious way. Um, that they were very rigid and demanding of of themselves, but you know they they really wanted to reform the entire church, right? To yes. pattern this behavior for the entire nation. Back in in England, the Church of England was what they were, you know, speaking yes. against, right? It, yeah, it wasn't enough removed from the the frippery of the of the Roman Catholic Church, and so. I mean, you can imagine in a way, yes, they've come to these new shores and so they're going to, you know, have that same attitude. But I, I mean, they were so successful in doing this in England that they mm -hmm. contributed really materially to the outbreak of civil war in England, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> and I suppose you could say to the founding of the American colonies in the first place, you know, people who were like, you know, we're going to take our Puritan way of life somewhere where we can express it without challenge. So... You know, you have these Puritans who come to New England, you have, you have early on, you know, before this period, John Winthrop, who's saying he wants to build a city upon a hill. He wants to build, you know, the morally superior land where everybody else will look at you and say, well, there, you know, this is a utopia. This is perfect. Everybody here is perfect. Uh, and I think, you know, that didn't happen, but you see no. <laughs> later on they were you know. pissed too they were <laughs> come on this is utopia just just say so, it so and it is going to be you have the uh you know the the puritans during the the time of the sandwich trials in the late 17th century who you know they're kind of they're tired they're like ugh, you know it never ended up happening the way we expected or the way our parents told us it would happen they're looking at you know you have the witch trials happening in europe and in britain for centuries before this and oh yeah and like on a scale of tens of thousands yeah right yeah it's really it's so funny when you know yeah the Salem witch trial is actually pretty tiny but but it 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 occupies such a great bit of the stage of early yeah. colonial history and it's it's you kind of think of it about it like huh these people living here they knew about the witch trials in in europe they some of them might have been living there at the time if they weren't they know people who were or their parents or grandparents were they've heard about it at the very least so you it's kind of like you know in the witch trials are happening in britain because they're trying to cleanse it right they're trying to get rid of all the evil and i think the puritans I don't know if they thought about this or if it was in the back of their mind or maybe subconscious, but they're trying to build their city upon the hill. So of course, you know, they have to purge, you know, oh, yeah. all the evil yeah. too. And they're trying to perhaps upstage the people in, in Europe and say, look at us, we're, we're morally superior. We, we are God's chosen ones. Yeah. Or we're doing it right at the very least. Yeah. So, and I guess, you know, I suppose if you look at it in terms of the, um, comparative population, you know, tens of thousands in, in the old world, let's call it all the European mm -hmm. nations and the colonial population, what was it, something like 200 accused overall and 20 
died at the end, which is like a really small number, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it doesn't exactly stack up to the tens of thousands, but it also took place in what, about a year, really just a fire yeah. that flashed up and burnt out. Yeah. Um, but it's, and I think that it is so um, just riveting a story even today because it has everything it's got, you know, kind of um, misogyny, it's got, it's got greed, it's got uh-huh. jealousy, it's got, you know, supernatural, unexplained things and fear and xenophobia. And I mean, look, it's kind of like 17th century fake news, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, so-and-so said this, so it must be true. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Or, well, I'm not so sure, but I'm going to just join the pack because I'd rather be in that pack than the one they're running after. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <sighs> the more things change. So we talked a little bit about the educational credentials that one of these Puritan ministers would have needed. And it sounds like some sort of social connections were helpful in getting an actual appointment. So was this, was this a really coveted job? Yeah, it would have been, you know, talking about how respected these people were, even though in Salem Village, it's kind of an isolated incident of, you know, you see ministers not getting paid and disrespected all the time. But they, even though they weren't paid, they still were held in a very high standing. And you see other ministers in other neighboring towns extremely well respected. It's not exactly like there was a hierarchy of ministers, but there was sort of an unspoken hierarchy of the ministers of the time. Like you knew which ministers were the big ones, which ones were the most well respected. So were there some who were kind of, you know, the rock stars of the Puritan ministers that people yeah, come from far and wide Absolutely. Here? There were. I mean, you talk... Um, I don't think I've mentioned them yet, but there were the Mathers increase in Cotton Mather, who were both ministers. Um, they were also, you know, writers, pamphletists, um, essayists. Yeah, they're, you know, these are the the bigwigs. They're the, you know, the guys who, if they're talking, you really want to listen to what they're saying. And they have a lot of influence. Yeah. These people, their opinions are very well respected. The job um, is very coveted. And, you know, like I was saying, with Samuel Paris when he first became the minister. I'm sure he was, he was excited. And Salem Village might not have been what he expected it to be, but I'm sure he was very grateful to be in the position, um, especially considering how long he had been trying to become a minister. So this is a very, um, very respected job and very respected career at the time. And within those, these communities, the Puritan church didn't have, you know, a hierarchy like other churches of the time, they really looked down upon you having a pope or having a head of church. Um, excuse me, the ministers are really the top of the hierarchy. And uh, this job was, it was very well respected. And, and it was very different from contemporary type ministers because they were still supposed to be part of their community. So ministers were typically married. They were typically expected to be married. They um, it was very frequent that if a minister's wife died, he would quickly remarry. So uh, they're expected to have a wife to, you know, be living the same sort of you know, lifestyle that the average Puritan would be living, except they had the standing of this moral superiority, this, you know, you know further connection to God that you know, they would be a guiding force. Yeah. And I guess it goes without saying it was all men. 
yeah, you know, there you would not find a, a woman minister at the time. Um, it was all men, and and it would have all been you know, privileged you know white men you know, who the top of the social hierarchy of the time. So you know they might not be wealthy, they might not be as influential as some of the you know super wealthy families at the time, but other than that, they are really one of the top type of person living in the colonies. What was the biggest mistake a Puritan minister might make? And who would hold them accountable? The biggest mistake a minister could make would probably be to question anything the Bible said, to question, um, even questioning the existence of witches, of demons, of you know, magic. If, if, a, if a minister were to question any of that, then the rest of the people around them would question whether or not they were you know, a true Christian. They would question whether they truly believed in God. So I'd say one of the biggest mistakes would be to, uh, they would be, have to be careful with the ways in which they critiqued, um, you know, this belief or this hysteria of around, you know, demons and witches and witchcraft, because if they didn't choose their words carefully, somebody could accuse them of not being pious enough, not being close enough to God. Um, and the people who would hold them accountable would essentially be other ministers. I mean, you could see some, you know, in the, within the community, within the parishioners, but it wouldn't be as likely that somebody would, you know, if someone had a, a problem with something a minister was doing or saying, they wouldn't so much listen to a parishioner or some random person, um, but they would more likely listen to other ministers if other ministers were critiquing this person. And did ministers ever, as far as you've seen evidence for, uh, kind of join forces or, you know, mutually support one another? You know, we just talked about an example in which one minister might um, speak out against another. But do you have, ever see any evidence for the opposite? You do see ministers coming together to talk about ideas, ask each other's opinion, um, it happens a lot, especially at the start of the witch trials where they're trying to figure out what exactly is going on. Um, there's, there's actually one point in which, you know, the minister in Salem Village, Samuel Paris, he doesn't know what to do. You know, his daughter and his niece are, are suffering. He doesn't know what to do about it. So yeah, he can at the center of all of this, yeah. right? I mean, it might've been kind of embarrassing in a way. <laughs> it's just like in my house. I mean, yeah. I'm the minister. <laughs> it's just... So, you know, he doesn't know what to do. So he consults all these different ministers to ask their opinion what he should do. And they come together and they come to an agreement that the best thing to do is just to wait and see what happens. Just, um, you know. Just because we don't know. We <laughs> they, they don't know. another way of saying we have no fucking idea. <laughs> do we have to bleep me out, Raz? Sorry. <laughs> I've never dropped an F-bomb on this show. Isabella, this is how much I love oh talking my, about the 17th oh my gosh, century. I had to stop myself. I'm overbrought. <laughs> the devil's, this is the devil's doing. Really? I mean, that's what they would say if, you know, oh, the devil made me do it. Um, <sighs> but, but yeah, you, you do see, uh, you know, Samuel, he doesn't know what to do. He, he consults all these different ministers and they're essentially like, we'll just wait and see what happens. You know, God will tell us, you know, we, we must wait. You know, God knows the answers and, 
they, they do a little period of some fasting. They, you know, they repent and hope that, you know, whatever sin they had done that God disagreed with would, you know, be forgiven. Uh, and then it, then it just gets worse. <laughs> right. And, you know, uh, listening to you talk about that, I, I'm just always struck by what I see, at least, and I, I'm so curious to know your thought on it, your take on it, but there's just this really kind of weird tension between upholding this very rigid understanding of Christian belief, which, you know, is the antithesis of, of supernaturalism, right? Mm -hmm. But yet validating the existence of the devil and his ability to act in real terms in the world to, to you know, harm Christians, right? Mm -hmm. I, I just, it's just such a, an amazingly weird sleight of hand intellectually, you know, much less in terms of religious. Faith. Yeah. Um, you, you see people critiquing the witch trials, some people that are accused critiquing the witch trials in, in the midst of it and people saying, oh, they, they have to be a witch. They, they have to be because here they are saying that this is all nonsense and all good Christians know that the, the devil is among us and he is constantly trying to tempt us and, you know, they're demons and it's, and this is just so real to them. This is so part of their everyday life. It, it's just the devil is to them constantly trying to tempt them um, to, you know, go into the darkness and they, they must reject. So it's, it's this very real fear to them. It's, it's as real as the air to them. It's as real as like every you know, tangible thing. Thank you so much for kind of contextualizing the Puritan minister's role in society at large on the eve of what became known after the fact as the Salem Witch Trials of 1692. I'd like to start with a question about what role these Puritan ministers actually played in this. I mean, we know Paris was personally involved, but, you know, in general, would you say that, that they were in any way responsible for this you know, paranoia of the time that just exploded? Absolutely. Um, I would say yes, um, because Paris specifically, even though he had a personal connection to what was going on, especially at the beginning, he also had a, um, a concrete role in in this the trials and the examinations of the accused people he was oh, working can you tell us about that yes i would love to um he was working as a um transcriber in the court so during several you know a, oh, a good handful wait, wait, wait. so in the in the governmental court yes so in the um so they established the the court of oyer and terminer which was the specific court to deal with the witchcraft accusations. And Samuel The government Paris, established those courts or the church established those courts? This was established um, through the new charter. So there was a charter that at the start of the witch trials um, had been revoked. And it, it was a huge issue because there were so many people who had been accused and arrested for witchcraft who were just waiting in jail and couldn't be tried. Oh, because the laws were kind of suspended. Yeah, so they had to wait for the new charter. So there, there is a new charter, a new governor comes over and a new deputy governor. 
and they established the court of Oyer and Terminer, which is specifically for the witch trials. And in this court, Samuel Paris is given the job as a transcriber. So some of the documents seems a bit fishy, doesn't exactly. it? <laughs> it was a little conflict of interest. <laughs> in a modern court, nothing like that would be allowed. Um, no. So you kind of see him just, even if he's not saying anything, him just being there, writing everything down, you being this presence, it, you can imagine kind of fans the flames. Absolutely. Are there any clear patterns in the, the way people were accused of witchcraft and by whom in the community? You know, at first, it's just Betty Paris and, and Abigail Williams, but after that, it's, it begins to blow up. And there are all these young girls, they're all very young. You know, Betty is nine, Abigail is 11, um, and the other girls are around the same age. I think one of the oldest was about 15. So they're all young girls. And they are, you know, having these horrible fits and nobody knows what's wrong with them. So early on with, with the first accusations of the witch trials, you see, uh, you know, those afflicted girls, Abigail Williams and Betty Paris accusing Tichaba, the enslaved woman in their household, and two women um, named Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne. And all three of these women are essentially social outcasts. You have Tichaba, of course, she's enslaved. You know, she's probably from Barbados or um, of African descent. So she, she is looked at as inferior. Then you have you know, Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne, who I, I always get them confused because they're both named Sarah. But, <laughs> but one of them is an old beggar woman who, you know, she's essentially, she's homeless. She is, um, you know, not in good health. She's old. And she, you know, walks around the town muttering to herself, yelling at people. She, you know, she's the stereotype of what a witch could be at the time. And then the other woman, years before the witch trials, ended up purchasing the indentured servant contract of a man that she was in love with and marrying him. So all three of these women are kind of the idea at the time that people would have of who could be a witch. They were, you know, the perfect stereotype of who was a witch. They didn't fit within the society. They acted in different ways from people at the time were expected to act. And then it starts to get really strange because after this, lots of very well-standing people got, start to get accused. You have the best example of one of the early, you know, people to get accused who was very respected in their community is Rebecca Nurse, who she was an elderly woman. She was considered to be a very good Christian woman in her community. She was very well liked, very well respected. Um, she came from a well-off family. Um, pretty much everyone liked her. And then out of nowhere, she is accused of witchcraft. She ends up, you know, getting thrown in jail. She has a trial. At her trial, originally, the jury, but and keep in mind the jury at the time, it was, you know, white. Who is the jury? Men. <laughs> all white Very representative. <laughs> so yes, very, very representative of the community. <laughs> but 
interestingly, you know, she's so well respected. The jury finds her not guilty. But when she's found not guilty, you know, the girls that have accused her, they're in the courtroom. You know, the girls, the, the accusers are always in the courtroom. And sometimes they start, you know, giving a big fuss and they start screaming and contorting and they are so upset that she is found not guilty that the judges tell the jury to come up with a different verdict. And you know, the judges, you know, they say they have one more question for, for Rebecca Nurse and they ask their question and she doesn't respond. She doesn't have any response whatsoever, like no indication um, that she even heard what they said. And they take that as a sign that she's guilty. She's not talking because she's guilty. And the jury comes back and they give a guilty verdict and she's, she's hanged for witchcraft. And it's kind of, this is, it's not the first time, but it's one of the most prominent examples of when a very upstanding person in the community is accused and hanged um, for witchcraft. Uh, it becomes, I think, very, very scary for the people living there at the time because it's, it starts out as, it's, it's the stereotypical, you know, quote, witch who's being accused. And then it starts to be anybody and everybody is being accused and people are, are terrified of, of, you know, stepping the wrong way, of doing something wrong, of, of saying something that can be misconstrued um, and that they would be accused. It starts to be a kind of free-for-all of all sorts of people are getting accused of witchcraft. Oh, it would have been, and especially in this social um, and religious context that you've sketched out for us, just how sort of the biggest fear people had was being different or, you know, having to encounter people who are different from them and, and interact with them. So I just wonder what kind of, uh, you know, let's just use the kind of slang term dirty politics were at play in this, in this shift from sort of targeting, you know, clearly marginalized people to, you know, moving closer to those who actually are like us. Like, what do you, what do you think was the motivation for that? I mean, it seems like that's becoming a power play within the group, right? Yeah. Um, it's, you, you kind of wonder when reading these court documents of how much it was these afflicted girls and, and how much of it was their parents. Yeah, because you have <laughs> cases in which, um, you know, it's the daughter of, you know, this prominent person who doesn't necessarily like that person. And, you know, and suddenly the daughter is, is accusing them of witchcraft. You definitely see this um, this strange, you know, power dynamic. This strange, like, undercutting of accusations. You know, where it's possible that you know you have these adults using these these very very young girls to you know get them to do what they want. What do you think about economic motives for these accusations? In many cases, they're somebody who is accused of witchcraft and thrown in jail, their land would be taken from them. So, I, I mean, there's an example, uh, you know, one of the other 
figures that I'm not really going to go into him because he doesn't, you know, play that much into this conversation. But um, another person who's accused of witchcraft, a man named Samuel Wardwell, he's a Quaker. Um, he's not living in Salem Village, he's living in another town. And he also, you know, he likes to tell fortunes. So he's, he's accused of witchcraft. Oh, bad idea. Yeah. Bad idea, Samuel. Yes. <laughs> I hope he stopped as soon as this started. <laughs> so he is accused of witchcraft. He's hanged. Um, and his land, you know, is taken from him. And then it's basically up for grabs. The, the, the state, the, you know, or the Massachusetts Bay Colony ends up seizing this land and they're free to sell it. So if there's some cases, you know, there's some theories that some historians have gone into of some families might want that plot of land that that person that they don't like has. If they're arrested for witchcraft, if they're hanged, that land is up for grabs and they can purchase it. So it's this kind of interesting kind of wonder, um, you know, if, if there were people that were specifically accused because somebody wanted their property and, and they weren't willing to sell. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really the thesis of Paul Boyer and Stephen Nissenbaum's famous um, uh, Salem Possessed, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's this, this great sort of, I mean, I, I think as an anthropologist, I'm never going to go for a, 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 you know, a singular um, causation. I mean, this is such an incredibly fascinating and complex story, which draws on everything that makes us human. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's <laughs> everything down from, you know, base needs and economic wants all the way up to cosmology and you know, real, real beliefs. But uh, I've always found that argument very compelling. The land grab. So, you know, there's so many theories, you know, surrounding the witch trials, you know, you know, ones that have, you know, very, you know, firm historical basis, some that don't necessarily have any historical basis, but there are so many theories and it's really interesting to see, you know, what, you know, modern historians looking back at this, um, you know, come to think of it. And you're, like you said, it really says a lot about, you know, humans and, and how humans naturally react to things and, and how people in this scenario, in this time period, would react to, to their circumstances. Yeah, well, that's a perfect cue to get us back into the experience of these Puritan ministers at the time. So they're sort of in the thick of this stuff. I mean, well, you know, Paris, literally, he's kind of got a, a toe in both sides of things, legal and religious, which does seem yes. just outrageous. But given what you've said about the lack of division between church and state, I guess, really, it's not surprising. But um, yeah, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about how the response of a Puritan minister, such as Paris and others, you mentioned there were others who responded to the, to the um, crisis, you know, how it's an example of a system, uh, sort of a, um, a structuring system adapting in times of massive upheaval. Yeah, um, because the entire court that was dealing with it, um, with the trials, was established specifically for that purpose. So it's a really interesting, you know, you see it, it's molded specifically to attempt to deal with the crisis at hand. 
I just doesn't feel unbiased to me. It <laughs> just doesn't, my no. instinctive response is that's going to be tough to maintain. Oh my gosh. Impartiality. That was the basis of, and it would have been English law, right? They're English. These are yes. English people. It's English yes. law. So do, do you think there's any evidence that um, the public uh, of Salem Village kind of cottoned onto this at all? And, you know, did their view of ministers and the role of the of the religious leadership uh, change at all as a result of this mass hysteria? Looking at you know, the, the rise and then the fall of, you know, Puritan New England, you know, it's debated of when, when it really ended, but a lot of historians point to between the 1720s and 1730s. And you think about that, that's not that long after the witch trials. I mean, the witch no. trials were 1692. So this is within the lifetime of some of the people living through it. And then after the witch trials, nobody talks about Puritans very much. You know, you, you kind of go into the 18th century and in the 18th century, there's not much talk about oh, Puritans. They're terribly old fashioned if they come up at exactly. all. So it's very interesting. And um, you think about it and I, I think absolutely, I think the witch trials had you know a huge impact on people's opinions of the puritan establishment yeah i mean there were apologies issued right i mean it, it's kind of extraordinary but um the colony apologized and they gave money back to the families didn't they yes i mean yeah you know it's sort of like you know when the the safety board isn't watching what's going on with the airplane and they give the families some money later well that's great but you know i mean i'm glad you recognized it but hmm. you know what i always think is so ironic i um earlier i said yeah well tichuba's ends in all of this is actually kind of um, fascinating because i and please correct me if i'm wrong but she confessed and she and everybody else who actually confessed to witchcraft survived. They were not put to death. They were kept in jail for a certain amount of time and some of them died in jail, but the people who were actually hanged were the ones who just denied it to the end. Yes, yes. Um, and what do we make of that? How twisted. I know, um, except in the case of, uh, of Samuel Wardwell, who I mentioned briefly earlier, he confessed to witchcraft, but later recanted. So he was the only person who confessed who ended up, you know, getting executed, even though he, he recanted. Well, because in the end, okay, so in the end, though, he denied it. He, he denied yes. it after confessing. So what do we make of that? I mean, it's sort of deliciously um, just diabolical. It's really <laughs> dark. I um, know. It's, it's odd, yeah, because you know, Tichuba is one of the examples of somebody who she confesses and she's the first to confess. And after her, you know, there are all these people that confess because they figure out that if they confess, they get thrown back in jail and they don't get executed. So it's sort of a stay of execution. And by the time the, you know, the witch trials eventually ends and anybody who hadn't died in jail they get to, you know, somebody has to pay their jail fees. And it's this weird situation in which they accumulate these jail fees because they view them staying as in jail as room and board. In Tichuba's case, it's a complicated situation in which Samuel Paris refuses 
to pay her jail fees. So she stays in jail for a little while. He's just a superstar. That <laughs> he's just, oh, he's uh he is something. Um, he refuses to pay to let her out of jail. And she's stuck there for a little while. Eventually someone comes along and um, buys her at, at the cost of her jail fees. So she is, um, you know, re-enslaved and sold to somebody else and she completely disappears from you know all historical documents that can be found after if that i were point. her i'd run as far and as fast from salem village as i could so <laughs> yeah like, you know start anew yeah i mean it's like the ultimate irony of all this is uh, and i think really quite relevant in some respects to the modern day and and the the language that we hear from um certain politicians and, and public figures at large that you you save yourself by publicly endorsing the lie. <laughs> it's yeah. just, just it's you know in these people who confessed, uh, they were mainly you know kept in jail, kept alive to be looked at, you know, as witnesses to to other cases and being used against other people. So yeah. And especially if they implicated someone else and especially someone specific, you know, then, you know, they got treated even better, better because, you know, they are helping to implicate other people. So it's, you, you feed into, you know, this horrible, you know, hysteria and, and get rewarded basically. Yeah. Yeah. It's really so difficult to disentangle when the whole premise for the accusations are supposedly this very pure religious belief and a fear yes. that springs out of that. And I think that's part of what makes you know, this whole episode in history. I mean, it, it was less than a year. It's like a tempest in a teapot, let's be honest, against the relatively longer history of North American colonialism. But I, I think that it's always resonant, but I, I think in times like this, it's uniquely so. Yeah, I would agree. What's a spectral form? Essentially a person's ghost or spirit. It's like, it's not them, but it's, um, it's like a projection of them that can inflict harm. This is a huge source of, of accusations and of what they considered evidence at the time of somebody who was afflicted and suffering from an affliction would accuse somebody of coming to them in their spectral form and and pinching or pricking or harming them in some way and this would be considered evidence this um this would happen within the courtrooms somebody could be standing at the front of the courtroom be, you know being questioned and their accuser would be in there saying, their form is is pick is pricking me, is pinching me, is threatening to kill me. And nobody and no, else could see this, of course. Nobody else can see this, but it's considered evidence. It's unreal. So That's this is so becomes, scary, right? So scary. <laughs> How do you fight against that? You can't really do anything. If you say I'm not doing this, they think you're lying. So there's a lot of debate around this you know, supposed spectral evidence at the time. And it's really, really fascinating. At one point, the court goes to a group of ministers and asks what they think about how they're handling the proceedings. The ministers come back and say, they're all for the witch trials. They're fully supportive of, uh, of cleansing the evil, but 
they're not a fan of the spectral evidence. They don't really put much merit into it. They think it's dangerous that some people can be impersonated by the devil and then get accused even if they didn't do anything wrong. The court gets this and they basically they read the part that says that they're all for the witch trials and ignore everything And else. nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> they basically are like, oh yeah, the ministers are giving us the go ahead. Um, so yeah, there's so many people that are accused. I mean, George Burroughs, the minister, you know, the former minister of Salem Village, at his execution, he ends up giving, um, he ends up speaking, and he perfectly says the Lord's Prayer at his execution. And everyone watching, because, you know, this is a public affair, people are, you know, go to these executions to watch them. Everyone watching is astonished and they're amazed and they're in awe. And there are people that are described as being in tears because they're so moved by what he said. And then they execute him right after that. You know, the reason they're so moved is because, you know, it was said that somebody who, you know, was a witch couldn't say the Lord's Prayer, that they couldn't, you know, they couldn't say it without stumbling, without messing up. And he said it perfectly. And another minister comes riding up on his horse and says, oh, don't, don't pay attention to that. You know, even a devil, he says something lines of even, even a devil can speak as if they are an angel of light. And he wasn't even ordained. And it's like, you know, he wasn't ordained because they excommunicated him, but he, he had been ordained up until that point, practicing as a minister. And then they just bury him in a shallow crevice. And there's a story, this you know, striking image that someone who witnessed it describes of, they didn't even, you know, dig the hole deep enough or put enough dirt over him to cover his entire body. He still has body parts sticking out from the ground. After this point, you know, in the late stages of the trials, there start to be more criticisms of it, you know, from more prominent people. There's a man in Boston who wrote, wrote um, excuse me, who wrote a now very famous letter um, critiquing the witch trials, and he actually sends the letter to an unnamed minister. We don't know who, who received it. We don't know who the minister was, but it was a minister that he sent it to. And after it gets sent, it ends up getting circulated throughout the town, and all these prominent people are reading it, and he's critiquing the trials. He's critiquing spectral evidence. Um, he has so many great quotes, you know, talking about how horrific these events are. And this person ends up getting in contact with one of the um, ministers in Increase Mather, um, who's this you know, prominent Boston, high-respected minister, and he ends up going to one of the jails with Increase Mather to visit these um, accused victims who are in jail and speak with them. And this is really the start of the end of the trials. This is you know, what, one of the last events um, in which you know, finally people are speaking up against it and realizing that all the horror that's happening around them and you know you have you know, the end finally arriving <laughs> wow I, yeah it's it, it realization that it's smoke and mirrors it's whoever has the microphone and the podium stating their agenda and people taking their word for it yeah. even when <laughs> evidence i mean let's forget either evidence is non-existent in the case of the spectral evidence but when the evidence contradicts what the fact is meant to be. For example, your story about George Burroughs um, reciting the Lord's Prayer. It really, uh, 
you know, reading the, this contemporary description of his execution, of, of how his body is treated after the execution, um, you know, I like to think that there are people probably watching that that at that moment realized um, how Beginning horrific, of the end. Yeah, yeah, how horrific it all was. I mean, they're supposed to be these good, upstanding, you know, people of God, and yet you know, look, what, look what's happening around them. God, I just, my, my, every fiber of my being is screaming out to ask you if you see some very big parallels in the, in the modern day and what goes oh on gosh. with our leaders, our elected leaders, and the way the media is, is used in a similar fashion as it, oh my you know, frankly was, such as it was in the Salem witch trials. Absolutely. I mean, you see, um, you know, it's this horrible scapegoating that you see throughout history, you see it, you know, in so many different prominent historical events, this, this idea that all your problems are caused by this specific group of people who are making your life worse. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there are so many different examples we can look into of today of, you know, uh, immigration and the you know, ridiculous, you know, hate that is, you know, spouted from, you know, the White House. Well, um, and the number of times religion is used exactly. as, you know, the standard to rally around that, that this is somehow correct in God's eyes is just, it's, it's sickening. Exactly. I mean, I, there was a recent um, speech from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who I adore her. She, um, she talks about, you know, how there are people who use religious freedom as an excuse to discriminate. And, and she talks about, like, how dare you? You know, she, she describes herself that she herself is religious and, and she finds it appalling that um, people use this excuse to spout hate and hate, hatred for, towards other people. Um, you really see it throughout history and you really see it in the witch trials. I and mean, even there's so many comparisons you can make, but you, you know, it's, it's, it's very, um, it's very sad <laughs> to see uh, you know, this, this idea of, you know, this group of people, you know, they're the reason you're having these problems, you know, you put the blame on somebody else and, you know, you don't think about, you know, how it affects the people that you're placing the blame on. And I think that's like, that's exactly what happened, you know, in the witch trials, they viewed themselves, you know, the people accusing others as doing God's work as, you know, you know, purging the world of evil. But then afterwards, you know, except for a few, pretty much, you know, almost everybody involved in the witch trials expresses some sort of regret for what happened. Um, you know, you're, you have the, some of the afflicted girls, you know, growing up as they're older saying that, you know, what I did was wrong. You know, those these people were not guilty. They didn't do anything wrong. And I, I am responsible for the deaths of innocent people. And of course, they then turn around and say, but it was the devil who made me do it. You know, they, they turn it back on, you know, but it's not my fault. And, you know, it, it is, you, you can really connect it to, to what happens today in the, our modern world. It's the kind of the human, you know, response. And I've done a lot of research on the Salem Witch Trials, but I've never specifically looked at it from the minister's perspective before. You know, this is the first time I, you know, I've looked at it from all different angles, but this is the first time I've really been like, okay, so what, what was going on in Samuel Paris's head? I still don't really you know, have you know, much sympathy for him at all, but 
it's interesting to try to you know, think about the psychology of how he was thinking, because I think there are people just like Samuel Paris today who have the same sort of psychology um, in their heads. And, you know, when you're, you're, you're talking to modern audience, you know, about modern issues, um, you know, sometimes you have to try to think, you know, why is this person thinking this way? And how can I try to reason with them and try to change their <laughs> mind? You know what I mean? Yeah, that's the trick, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> oh, no, I, I actually, I love that. I love the way you formulated that. And I'll, I'll say I hadn't really thought about it from the point of view of the Puritan minister either. So I want to thank you so much, Isabella, for um, for shifting your vantage point and sharing it with us today. I have loved having this conversation with you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was this was really great. We'll never know Reverend Samuel Paris's thoughts as he watched his daughter and niece point their fingers at neighbors and cry, witch. Any more than we can reconstruct those of the accused, forced to endure sham trials and the threat of wrongful execution. The emotions, on the other hand, terror, shock, anger, confusion, those we can assume. They're familiar to us, all of us, whether our personal demons are visible or the products of imagination. It doesn't matter if our fears and superstitions are real. What matters is our belief in them and our willingness to see what we want to see, even at the expense of logic and due process. The Puritan ministers of Salem Village were supposed to be voices of reason, wells of integrity and strength in a community gripped by hysteria. Instead, they proved to be just fatally human, caught between blurred lines of faith, politics, and power in one of human history's most iconic examples of dangerous groupthink. As Halloween approaches, it's an apt reminder that the scariest stuff doesn't always hide in the shadows. Sometimes it blows up right in front of you, even in the guise of something you always thought would save you. Thanks as always for listening, and hope to have you back again next week here at Working Overtime. Hey there. You can follow today's guest, historian Isabella Connor, at Bella's Vignettes on Twitter and Instagram. As always, we're on social media with plenty of exciting show updates and additional content. Please share your thoughts and questions with us at Working OT Series on Twitter. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help get the word out. And sharing the show with the history lovers in your life. Thank you so much for listening. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Lullaberty, and Ras Cunningham. Thanks for listening, and remember to like and subscribe. <laughs>